It's Aspen Insight. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. We have some really fascinating stories on the show today. I'm going to take you into war-torn Syria and introduce you to young Syrian journalists who are hungry for the truth. Also, a cybersecurity expert talks about Russia's meddling in the 2016 U.S. election, how they managed to do it, and the powerful influence of fake news on the internet. And an FBI corruption investigation has shaken the world of college basketball. An expert from our Sports and Society program explains how the scandal will impact schools and players. But before all that, Marcy, I know you recently had a chat with the Institute's president, right? Yes. As you know, in addition to being the head of the Aspen Institute, Walter Isaacson is also a biographer who's written about people like Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs. His most recent book just came out, and I sat down to talk with him about it. Who is this book about? Leonardo da Vinci. We talk about how da Vinci was more than just an artist. Isaacson says writing da Vinci changed his life. It took him six years to finish. Wow, I'm excited to hear it. Hey, isn't he stepping down as the Institute's president? He is, later this year. We talk about that, too. Here's my interview with Aspen Institute president and CEO Walter Isaacson. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. What inspired you to write about Leonardo da Vinci? My whole career, I've been interested in how genius and creativity happens. You know, I've known a lot of smart people at the Aspen Institute, Time Magazine, but smart people, they're a dime a dozen. What really matters is being imaginative and creative. And over the years, I've noticed that the most creative people are the ones who are interested in the most subjects. They like music as well as science. They like art as well as engineering. They're like Steve Jobs or Benjamin Franklin. And the ultimate of that is Leonardo da Vinci. He was not just an artist. No, Leonardo da Vinci we think of as an artist, but he thought of himself primarily as an engineer, as a scientist. When he tries to get a job with the Duke of Milan, he writes a letter. The first 10 paragraphs talk about all of his engineering skills and the inventions he can make. And only in the last paragraph does he say, I can also paint and sculpt as well as any man. Now, certainly he could, uh, as well as any person ever. I mean, he does the two greatest paintings in history, the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. But also he does anatomy studies. He does all sorts of engineering feats and the diversion of water. He's the person who understands the human heart and how the heart valves work. He dissects human faces and looks at the muscles and nerves and then paints the greatest smile in human history. So for him, it all came together. You've said that da Vinci brought real emotion to art that other artists hadn't included in their works. How did he do that? Leonardo da Vinci loved to walk around the town of Florence and then Milan and look at people's expressions. And he jotted down in his notebook that he carried with him. And he always wanted to know how gestures and expressions reflected inner emotions. If you see uh, paintings even of, say, Tobias and the Angel before Leonardo came along, they're, you know, beautiful and they have beautiful color, but you don't have a sense of inner emotion. And when he does it with his teacher, Veraccio, you look and say, wow, I can tell what that angel is thinking. I can tell what uh, Tobias is feeling. I can even see the dog scampering and that dog has emotions. 
And so that ability to convey emotion through gestures finally culminates, of course, with the Mona Lisa. I mean, you look at her face and you go, wow, that's a person of deep emotional, you know, thinking. Well, speaking of the Mona Lisa, he painted that later in life. How does it reflect all of the work he did in his life around optics and art and science? The Mona Lisa is his ultimate painting. He starts it in 1503 and carries it around with him for the rest of his life until it's at his deathbed in 1519. And to me, it has everything he's learned about anatomy, about science, about the earth and the universe and how we fit into it. And it has, like a lot of his paintings, a river that seems to flow from ancient history, the jagged mountains in the background, and then come through civilization and then wind into the blood and body and soul of the the, uh, person being portrayed, the Mona Lisa. And even as you look at the smile, the smile flickers because he knows that if you're looking directly at something, the retina of your eye catches the detail. And if you're looking slightly away, it catches the shadows and colors better. And so as you move across the face, as you look from her cheek to her nose to her smile, that smile flickers on and off. It's very amazing. Amazing. Another famous painting, The Last Supper, uh, was painted many times before by other Mm. artists. How was da Vinci's version different? Most previous versions of The Last Supper were rather staid. They gave you a sense of a scene, uh, not much emotional content. But of course, every character in The Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci is expressing something very emotional. It's not just the scene, It's a narrative. You can feel it flow. You look at Jesus and you hear him saying, one of you shall betray me. And then as your eye moves across the painting, you see that ripple outward almost as each group of the apostles further and further away from him hear it and they're each in the midst of reacting to it. And then you can feel the reaction flowing back as he says, he that dippeth his hand with me will be the one. And then you even see the, um, the beginning of the Eucharist where he's reaching for the bread and for the wine. So all of that makes it a narrative scene, not just one moment. What shocked me yesterday when you spoke was uh, that there are just a handful of authenticated pieces of mm-hmm. da Vinci's. How many are out there that we know for a fact are his? Well, if you're talking full-fledged paintings, Leonardo da Vinci probably did 20 finished paintings, about 15 of which are still in existence, some like Lita and the Swan are tragically lost. Others like Adoration of the Magi, he never really finished. But uh, there are uh, six or seven great masterpieces like his St. Anne, his Mona Lisa, his Last Supper. Uh, to me, uh, Lady with the Ermine is one of the most beautiful of all paintings, even the musician, but you really don't have more than 12 completely finished, completely by Leonardo's hands, pieces of art. So you said that it's taken you between five and six years to write the book. How has it changed you? One of the things I've done is become and push myself to become more curious about things. 
You know, the good thing about Leonardo da Vinci is he wasn't like Einstein. There's no way I could have ever come up with the equations of general relativity. Einstein had a mind we can't begin to imitate. But with Leonardo, he writes in his notebook as he walks around in the evening and looks at the dragonfly wings and exactly how they alternate when the dragonfly takes off. Or he looks at water flowing into a pond. And here at the Aspen Institute, you know, we have all these little rivers and little streams that go by and they flow into the pond in front of our meeting hall. And so suddenly I stop and I look at the swirls in that pond as the water hits. And I look how the bubbles circle in the same way. And even how it looks like the Andy Goldsworthy wall that uh, was designed next to that building, which has the same sort of curves. And so at the very least, I've tried to be more curious and more observant about things I used to just walk right by. Is there anything else about the book that you'd like to mention? One of the things I try to do at the end of the book is just say, learning from Leonardo. What are the lessons? And there are really about a dozen easy lessons about how each one of us can live a richer life and more like Leonardo. Be more curious, be more observant, but also how to procrastinate. He knew how to procrastinate. He'd gather all the information and then let it simmer for a little while until he had a creative thought about it. And uh, just the way he put things on paper, you know, that made me decide, okay, I'm going to take notes and make lists on paper because it helps organize thoughts. So to me, there's nobody in history who you can read about and say, oh, I get it. Here's some lessons I can learn and change my life. It's the uh, 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death coming up in 2019. And so I think there'll be a resurgence of interest in him. And people will, I hope, appreciate the fact that he looked at all fields of knowledge and endeavor and decided he wanted to see if he could learn as much as possible about every single one of them. So sometimes we may say, oh, you know, I don't really like music. And Leonardo would say, well, that's crazy because he was a musician. Or people who love music may say, oh, I don't really like math. In my opinion, that's just as crazy because math is hard, but understanding music sometimes is hard. And so if we can all be sort of pushed a little bit just to look at triangles and squares and the shapes and the areas and how they can be transformed the way he did, that will help us have a visual feel for either math or science or botany or art or music or poetry. And we'll be able to understand how the, all these fields of endeavor are beautiful and how they work together. You're stepping down from your role as president and CEO of the Aspen Institute later this year. Can you describe some of the big changes that you've seen in your 13 years hmm. at the helm? Yeah, when I came to the Institute, it had a lot of very private meetings like the Aspen Strategy Group, or I just came from one on communication society that Charlie Firestone runs. But these were invitation only and behind closed doors. And I said, well, ideas flourish when they get to spread, when people talk about them. And so why don't we have more public events? So we created the Aspen Ideas Festival, the Aspen Health Forum, the Aspen Security Forum, so that our policy programs would have a way to open up to not only the town of Aspen, but to the public at large. And then the second wave of things we did 
is we're trying to bring younger people and people from lesser served communities, you know, cities across America, uh, who may be high school kids like the Bezos scholars and others, so that it's not just a hand-picked uh, lucky few who get to be part of the Aspen Institute, but we can try to be part of a process of healing America in a way, bringing people from different backgrounds in America together based on values. As you move forward and as the Institute moves forward, is there anything, any direction or advice you would leave with the next leader? I would advise the person who comes next to say, how are we going to move this forward? How are we going to move it up one more notch? And perhaps for me, that would be taking Aspen across America. You know, Aspen is in Washington and we're here in Colorado, but maybe every town in America needs an Aspen. And maybe if every town in America had an Aspen, you'd have people in that town saying, all right, well, I'm a conservative, this guy's a liberal, but we'll meet at the Aspen Institute and we'll try to see how we can make our community a better place. I think America needs to go through that healing because we've become too partisan, too poisoned in our discourse, and perhaps having a broad-based Aspen Institute with little branches and communities across America would be one way to heal this nation. All right, thank Great. you. Thank you. Walter Isaacson is the outgoing president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. His book, Leonardo da Vinci, was released October 17th. Okay, Marcy, I'm going to totally change gears from art and science to cybersecurity. Okay, what have you got for us? Well, it's an interview we recorded at this summer's Aspen Security Forum, and to introduce it, I have our colleague John Hogan here, who works for the Institute's Homeland Security Program and helps run the Security Forum. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Zach. So for folks who don't know about the Security Forum, can you fill them in about what it is? Sure. So the Security Forum is an annual gathering of a lot of the top-level uh, government officials. You've got former officials as well. I saw John Brennan out there this year. Um, a lot of leading thinkers and just industry insiders, people who are vital to the decision-making process, right? Um, and what we do is we gather them out there and we have conversations about the most important issues of the day. So last year you saw us talking a bit about uh, election 2016. That was a big issue. Um, this year we were talking about Russian interference and North Korea, among other things as well. And so this next interview is with one of those experts that you just talked mm -hmm. about, an expert in cybersecurity. I got to be in the room for it. It was a great conversation. But can you fill folks in about who this guy is and what you talked about? Sure. So we were very fortunate to get uh, Clint Watts in the studio with us. And Clint is the uh, Robert Cox fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Um, Clinton has been in the news a lot. Um, he's been talking about ways in which uh, foreign uh, actors have been interfering in the U.S., uh, specifically via social media, which is a bit new for us, but it's very much in the news. Um, I don't know if you saw a couple days ago, but the Washington Post just recently broke a story about how uh, Russian firms were buying ad space, targeted ad space on Facebook. So this is something that's continuing to unfold. We're seeing more and more and more of it. Um, and we're really struggling to figure out how it works. And Clinton is really on the leading edge of folks who are trying to figure out solutions to close the gap and make us a little bit more secure to these types of attacks. That's great. Uh, let's listen to your conversation with Clint at this year's Aspen Security Forum. So uh, we just wanted to ask you a couple of brief questions today, um, just get your insights on what's happening today in America. 
one of the things that we talk about nowadays is how Russia hacked the 2016 election, right? Right. And so I wanted to pick your brain and see, is hacking even the right term? Should we be framing it like that? Or is that confusing to the everyday person? And then uh, what are the types of tactics that they use to influence our election in the first place? Can you expound upon that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think hack in the traditional sense of like breaking into a computer network is the right way to do it. They, they didn't hack our computers, they hacked our minds, essentially. And in terms of the hacking they were doing, uh, the idea behind it was to gather compromising information, release that into the information environment uh, globally so that you can influence uh, a population around certain themes. And those were basically in order, I would I would characterize them as one very anti-Hillary Clinton, and that continued all the way to the election day. The second one was pro-Trump, and, and that was uh, more and more as his popularity grew. And then once he won the nomination, it was decidedly in his favor. And then I think the third thing was uh, Bernie Sanders got a raw deal. Uh, that was a, a the idea of promoting that theme was we want to depress turnout for Hillary Clinton uh, on election day. Uh, the fourth one that they pursued, which is somewhat different, was a backup plan, which is if Hillary Clinton won, they wanted to undermine her mandate to govern. So if you remember back to like October, November last year, uh, the themes that were being pushed were election fraud, vote vote rigged, those sorts of uh, um themes was what they were pushing, because that way, if Hillary Clinton did win, there'd be debate internally, internal strife in the United States about whether it was a legitimate election. So the goal wasn't so much to hack our computers or hack individuals. It was to hack our minds so that we vote or pursue foreign policy positions that Russia prefers. And they continue to do that today. They still have great influence in certain audience segments inside the United States and will continue to. They have not left that space just because the election is over. One of the other terms that's being thrown out uh, today is fake news. Right. Uh, anything you disagree with nowadays is fake news. And I think that came out of the election. You know, a lot of people started realizing what was going on and started picking out things as fake news. You can't trust that. Right. Um, and so one of the things that you started bringing up in your session here at the security forum was this idea of a nutrition label, right? So that consumers could identify how trustworthy the source that they were consuming was. Right. Can you explain a little bit about how that would work in today's media environment? You know, we've got Twitter, we've got a 24-hour media cycle. Um, how exactly would would that work? Yeah, so let's go back to the, the first component, which, which is fake news or false news stories. And really, there's a spectrum. You know, you have true news where the facts are very clear and no one debates that. Then you have what we call manipulated truths, where you take a grain of truth and then you spin it into a story that isn't actually true. So, you know, you can parse out uh, components that are true and it makes it more believable when you're pushing a false narrative at the end. The last part is completely false information. And you get a you know a pretty good mix across there. We we tend to find at least in the run up to the election that we consumed more fake news than real news. And the reason we did it is it confirmed our personal biases. Uh, it supported the candidate uh, that we preferred. Uh, it's a policy position that we like, and it makes us feel good. And so it's a lot like food. If you eat a lot of junk food, <laughs> you know it's the same way. You you eat junk food. Uh, you know it's bad for you, but you still like it, and it's kind of hard. It's almost like an addiction, right? It's hard to turn it off. And so when I was looking for other models or other ways to try and combat this, uh, one of the strategies that's already been used is let's just tag all fake news stories as fake. Well, then you get into endless debates 
over one story or another. The other part is there are lots of fake newsmakers out there that do it for advertising clicks or political campaigns or satire even. The Onion is a great example. You know, it's fake news. Um, we don't necessarily want to squash that, you know, to, to a certain extent. And the news itself, if you try and tag all of it, you'll wear yourself out because you can make fake news faster than you can refute it. So the idea was if you want to silence fake news, you really need to go at the outlets that are putting it out. If you take out the outlet, um, you will essentially stop the flow. And it's kind of like artillery, I always say. You know, if you tried to stop an artillery barrage by catching every shell, indefinitely you will lose. But if you actually take the gun out, um, you can start to win the battle. And so nutrition labels was a system to do that. So when I was a kid, Consumer Reports was a magazine which provided a very thorough analysis across many variables um, to tell you what a good product or a safe product was. And if you're a consumer, then you could go to that you know, publication and say, okay, this is an independent sort of review agency. The same thing we want to do with information, I think, essentially, is get to the point where if a news outlet is out there, we rate them um, based on true versus false. Uh, you put lots of parameters around it, and, and you do an evaluation over many articles or a time period, almost like a rating system. And that rating then shows up when you are on a Google search, a Yahoo search, whatever it might be. Uh, when the story comes up, it, it's got a little you know icon that says this is true versus false. You could even put political leanings in there if you wanted to so that it informs the consumer and you're not restricting free speech and freedom of the press and you're informing them about what they're consuming, just like food. So that's the nutrition label sort of way uh, we look at it as you tell people what they're consuming, then they have to make their own decisions about what's good for them. Um, so I know in, in 2015, you were the target, um, I think of a relatively interesting cyber attack. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, um, you know, what you can and uh, what you learned from that experience. Yeah. So I, you know, I was just like anybody else. I, I'm not in government and I haven't been for, you know, a good while. And so I had written about uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts and false accounts, you know, online. And it was, uh, I think, two to three weeks later, the FBI visited the Foreign Policy Research Institute and said, hey, you know, Clint's bio and some of his articles have got a malware on it. Um, and they've somehow breached your system and installed that on there, which is pretty sophisticated. I mean, a lot of times, you know, these everyone's got pretty decent cybersecurity, but, you know, they work their way into these systems. And I had also had other weird things happen, email addresses that I used showing up in places that I didn't use it. Um, I've been attacked over mobile apps, actually, sort of threatened in different ways. Um, and so it was a sort of a consistent sort of theme that had popped up. Uh, and so every day today, I still assume that they're probably watching all of my emails. And whenever they decide it maybe it's to their advantage, it's advantageous to them, they're going to try a smear campaign, you know, or try and do some sort of data dump on me as well. I'm probably not important enough to them uh, at this point to do that. But they have, you know, probably something on me or they will have something on me. And, and they know that the American audience will kill me uh, one way or another based on the false or manipulated information that they dump on me. And it's a very strategic weapon. And I'm not the only one in this case either. I, I would tell you there are probably thousands of Americans that they've done this to. And they probably sit every day and wonder, okay, or maybe they don't even know that their networks have been penetrated and eventually their information is going to be dumped out on the internet. And I think that's why here at the forum yesterday when we were listening to some of the policy positions, you know, uh, I, I think it was uh, Mr. Bosser basically said the dot com, you're on your own. We'll notify you like they did me. 
But other than that, like, you're just going to have to deal with it. Well, let's think about that. Like, what if a nation state decides that they want to take all Russian foreign policy experts and all media people to talk about Russia and get them fired or ruin their career or create some sort of fake news or public smear to where they lose their audience? They can literally eliminate all of their you know, adversaries that are in these foreign populations such that it's only people that support their foreign policy position that are left. I thought that was a little unnerving. Uh, I'm not too worried about me. I don't have any foreign policy, you know, oomph. I, I, I can't really change anything in the U.S. government, but a lot of people can. And so you're essentially saying, well, Colin Powell, sorry you were the former Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and your email got broke into sorry about your luck. And oh, by the way, you've just been discredited, you know, publicly. I I think that's a pretty dangerous position for our country to be in. I mean, cybersecurity is definitely a dangerous place nowadays. It seems like everyone's uh, trying to figure out ways to protect themselves. And so I guess one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, do you have any kind of tips that you could pass along to people, you know, our listeners, uh, things that you can do? I mean, a lot of people know the standard, don't open attachments from folks you don't know, don't open strange emails. But what are the other things that you should be looking out for? What are the other things that you can do to insulate yourself? Um, what can you share with us? Yeah, so you ha- you've got to make a decision about what you want to achieve on the Internet and what you're willing to take on. And I, I think the issue becomes how much of this uh, pain are you willing to accept in order to get the gain uh, uh, from social media and the Internet. And I would tell anybody that you should assume your private conversations aren't private. The Internet was never built to be a private communication platform. Uh, that's It was actually the reverse. It was to be a public sort of forum to bring everyone to communicate with each other. And so the way it's designed is not going to protect you. You can do all sorts of things. Uh, you can use encrypted apps. Uh, you can you know, use different forms uh, of communication, but each one of those is a little bit harder. And so I, I think over this last couple of years now, I'm communicating on eight different apps, you know, with people in direct message or whatever, and it's exhausting. I can't keep track of conversations. Um, and anything that you say that you don't want someone to know about, man, don't put it on a computer. And, and I'm not talking about illegal activity. I'm just saying personal, private information, uh, conversations like I have with my parents you know, or, or siblings. I don't want that stuff out on the Internet. We might be talking about things that are very personal to us. So I encourage people to do that on the phone and not on uh, email or text or chats or those sorts of things. And it, it's interesting, just in the past three to four years, you've really seen everybody move to share everything on the internet. And now everybody says, man, I'm not so sure I should have shared all that information on the internet. So it, it's now a vulnerability instead of a benefit. And I think people just have to decide on that trade-off. I've kind of gone with, I just assume I'm hacked all the time and I communicate and I can't really control the narrative that gets put around my stolen information. I'm not doing anything illegal. Um, I'm not doing anything that is totally embarrassing that I don't think mostly Amer- most other Americans or citizens of the world do. So I just kind of roll with it and I just dance like Russia's watching. You know, we, we were kind of talking about that before. <laughs> you need to just assume that, you know, what you do on the Internet, someone's probably seeing it. And if you haven't figured that out from just social media advertising, how creepy that is, someone's always watching what you're saying or doing on the Internet. Clint, it was great having you. Um, I'm sure we learned a lot from you today, um, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the rest of the forum with you. You know, Zach, it never ceases to amaze me how much we need to know about what's true on the Internet. I know, and this conversation made me realize just how important it is for everyone to be thinking about where they're getting their information. 
And I understand the Institute is doing a lot of work on this issue right now, right? Yeah, not only are we hosting events like the Security Forum, but we have a new cybersecurity and technology program that focuses entirely on this issue. They even hosted a cyber summit in Boston earlier this month. We have video and other helpful information from both the summit and the Security Forum on our website at aspeninstitute.org insight. You're listening to Aspen Insight. If you liked our conversation with Walter Isaacson about Leonardo da Vinci, you can hear more about the artist on our sister podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go. The episode, The Imagination of Leonardo da Vinci, features Isaacson speaking with philanthropist David Rubenstein. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts. Now, back to the show. How do college campuses lure the best players to the basketball court? As the FBI is discovering, in many cases, it has to do with bribery. The Bureau has launched a massive investigation, resulting in several arrests and exposing a criminal dark side to the sport. Our John Solomon with the Aspen Institute's Sports and Society program shares his thoughts. Madness has come early to college basketball this season, and it won't end anytime soon. Across the sport, everyone is anxiously waiting for the next shoe to drop after the FBI arrested 10 people on fraud and bribery charges last month. The federal government dug into the dark underbelly of how elite college basketball players are often recruited. It's a system of coaches, agents, financial planners, and shoe companies conspiring to attract players to a certain school in exchange for money to their families. Yesterday, 10 men, including college assistant coaches and an Adidas Executive were charged with bribing athletes. Assistant coaches at Arizona, Auburn, Oklahoma State, and the University of Southern California were arrested in the FBI's sting. Louisville's Hall of Fame basketball coach Rick Bettino is out, and more fallout is likely as the investigation continues. Mind you, no one who follows college basketball was surprised. How the best players land on campuses has been an open secret for decades. What's new is the FBI is now essentially equated violating NCAA amateurism rules to a crime, and it's happening as these rules are being challenged in federal court. The NCAA and schools cap players' value at a scholarship and miscellaneous costs associated with attending college. A key point is prosecutors allege that the universities are the victim. How? Through the right of honest services law. In the eyes of the government, the coaches defrauded their universities by not following NCAA rules. NCAA President Mark Emmert called the charges deeply disturbing. Greg Sankey, commissioner of the powerful Southeastern Conference, praised the government's intervention and said the alleged crimes are unfair to many individuals who recruit the right way. It's worth asking, is the government essentially doing the work of the NCAA, which lacks subpoena power and the threat of jail time to consistently enforce its rules? And if so, wonders Indiana University business law and ethics professor Nathaniel Grow, is this the type of conduct that the FBI really should be prosecuting? He says it's questionable whether any school was truly defrauded, given how commonly believed it is that college basketball players are paid under the table. 
Says Grow, quote, In pretty much any other industry, there is nothing illegal about paying an intermediary to help deliver a talented employee to a new employer. That is the entire basis of the headhunting and corporate recruiting professions. The only difference here is that the NCAA schools have agreed to forbid one another from paying their players, unquote. In other words, if NCAA amateurism rules didn't exist, would these even be crimes? That's a particularly intriguing question because the legality of the NCAA's own rules are currently being challenged in federal court. The so-called Jeffrey Kessler lawsuit wants to allow football and men's basketball players to be paid. So can the NCAA now successfully point to the FBI college basketball sting and tell a judge or jury, see, our amateurism rules are so important that the government is enforcing them? Or can the defendants successfully argue, see, the FBI sting shows that some of these players clearly have more value than their scholarship? Increasingly, there's more public support to allow NCAA athletes to earn money off their own name and image in this multi-billion dollar industry. Two-thirds of Americans favor the concept, according to a poll by the Washington Post and the University of Massachusetts. A sizable racial gap exists. 89% of blacks support the idea, while 60% of whites are in favor. Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski, the most famous coach in any college sport, is now openly questioning amateurism and says it's good to discuss if players should be paid. Says Krzyzewski, quote, We are not running this the way a billion-dollar industry should be run. We try to put a circle into a square, unquote. March Madness is the affectionate nickname of the NCAA tournament when these coveted players compete in highly lucrative games as America fills out its brackets. Remarkably, the FBI has managed to create more unpredictable drama off the court, and the ripple effects will likely last long beyond this one dark moment. John Solomon is editorial director of our Sports and Society program. Discover more about the program by searching Sports and Society on our website, aspeninstitute.org. The Syrian conflict is the world's bloodiest crisis. 11 million people have been displaced, and the death toll has reached 400,000. News reports like this video from CNN show the horrors of the war, bombings and destruction. But the stories of people surviving the violence often go untold. The nonprofit Syria Direct trains Syrians to tell the stories of their neighbors. The founder of Syria Direct was recently recognized by the John P. McNulty Foundation. It's a partner of the Aspen Institute. Every year it recognizes global changemakers working to improve society in places like the Middle East. Amjad Tadros has been smack dab in the middle of big international news stories. Joining us by phone from Amman, Jordan, is CBS News Middle East producer Amjad Tadros. And Amjad, what is the latest that you're hearing? For nearly three decades, he's produced stories from his base in Jordan for CBS News. I reported most of the Iraq war, you know, the Arab Spring, you know, I worked in uh, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, the Gulf. 
After the start of the Syrian revolution in 2011, he noticed a lack of balanced reporting in Syria. The area had become too dangerous for foreign reporters. So it was left for the Syrians themselves to report the news. And of course, it was very hard to find Syrians who were in the middle. Syrians sided with the government or the rebels. Activists and Syrian journalists took to YouTube and social media, Tadros says, posting heavily biased reports that were often lies or propaganda. We decided to sit in the middle, you know, and listen to these and listen to the other side and get our own facts and report the news. Every day at 11 a.m. we have our daily editorial meeting. Keenan Duffy is managing director of Syria Direct. The organization is based in Amman, Jordan. We discuss interview ideas, major topics that are uh, important at that moment inside Syria. Syria Direct teaches young Syrian reporters the ABCs of journalism, how to tell a compelling and truthful story. Tadros. And we allowed Syrians to tell stories that would have not been told otherwise. This report from a Syria direct journalist is called A Day in a Duma Kindergarten. Syrian children sit studiously at desks in a packed classroom. It's a kindergarten started by concerned teachers. Frequent bombings had closed many schools in Douma, a city near Damascus. Besides covering politics and the war, Syria Direct reports on the human side of conflict. And those stories have to be told, you know, for history, for the future. People have to know what happened. And I think we look at it as a duty for us to actually document and, you know, write, you know, the first draft of history, as was we say in the, in the news business. In July, Tadros was on stage in Aspen, Colorado, receiving an award from the John P. and Ann Welsh McNulty Foundation. Our final laureate realized the incredible value and scarcity of reporting steeped in local knowledge. So he began Syria Direct. Please welcome Amjad Tadros. Well, uh, thank you all. I'm really honored and humbled to be here, and thanks to the McNulty Foundation. The foundation partners with the Aspen Institute to recognize people doing incredible work to improve society. Laureates, like Tadros, are named each year. The foundation has awarded 40 people from more than a dozen countries. We do need a reset in so many different ways, and this is a very complicated time. Former Secretary of State and Aspen Institute trustee Madeleine Albright helped select the winner of the McNulty Prize. Good people working hard can make a reset and turn this world, which is a mess at the moment, into something that is exactly what we need in the 21st century. And the McNulty Prize, I think, is one of the best vehicles for this. The McNulty Prize was formed after the sudden death of its namesake, John McNulty. McNulty came from humble beginnings and became a successful banker. McNulty Foundation Executive Director April Aj says the annual award reflects John's brilliant leadership and his efforts to foster young innovators. I reached her over Skype. I think at the core of the prize is, is leadership and creating opportunity for other people. And that really reflects very strongly John's legacy and his values and his life. The laureates are chosen from the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network. 
It's a network of high-integrity, high-performing, entrepreneurial leaders. Aj says the laureates use their career success within their communities to improve the world. It's a real privilege for us to see how much individuals working in India or the Middle East or South Carolina, you know, are bringing forward models based on their experience, their understanding of the places where they're working to share with the rest of the world. The foundation's award comes with a monetary prize to help grow the laureates' organizations and long-term help with communications and fundraising. Amy Crockett won the McNulty Prize in 2016. I'm a maternal-fetal medicine physician, and I'm the medical director of the Greenville Health System OB Center. I'm also the clinical lead for the South Carolina Birth Outcomes Initiative. Her work focuses on preventing preterm birth. Babies born prematurely can suffer chronic health conditions their entire lives. It's a mystery what causes preterm birth, but doctors have discovered risk factors. Mothers having twins or mothers with chronic health conditions like diabetes are at risk. But there's also just this huge group of women that don't really have any identifiable risk factors that go on to deliver preterm anyway. And when you look at the risk factors associated with that group, some of the things that tend to crop up time and again really have to do with the social determinants of health. Women with a low level of education, minority women, young women, and women who are unmarried and poor are more likely to have a preterm birth. Crockett, who like other doctors spent just 15 minutes with her patients in an exam room, started using a different, more effective strategy. The Centering Healthcare Institute brings expecting mothers together in regular group sessions. When they come to the office, they come directly into the group space, and it's warm and it's welcoming, and they see people that they know when they get there. We serve snacks, so it almost feels like a party as they're coming in. Over the course of 10 sessions, the women learn about breastfeeding, choosing a pediatrician. They check their own vitals, and most importantly, they connect with one another. Right here for all of us, this is how we all feel right now. Social connections and the importance of social support are you know, really very primal to just the human experience. You know, people have been sitting together around campfires, learning and making important decisions for a long time. And I think centering provides women that space. The program has resulted in women engaging with their health more, and it's lowered the rates of preterm birth, diabetes, and increased rates of breastfeeding. While Crockett didn't come up with the program, she's growing it across South Carolina, studying its effectiveness, and coming up with a toolkit for other states. For 10 years now, the McNulty Foundation has been awarding changemakers like Amy Crockett and Amjad Tadros. The organization is celebrating its anniversary. Executive Director April Aj. It's a very special year for us. It's a, it is beginning to feel like a movement, and that that movement, of course, is built on the Aspen Global Leadership Network and the incredible individuals who, who gather together and make these commitments to create change. It's a movement of individual leadership that inspires and guides people to take control of their future, whether it's in Syria or South Carolina. To discover more about the John P. McNulty Prize, go to McNultyFound.com. Org. There, you can also read about all the Foundation's laureates. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. 
Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Next month, we hear from a mother who struggled with an opioid addiction. The, the disease of addiction is such a snake. There is a cure for it, you know, and it's so simple that all the cure is is just being able to want, want to live. We explore the opioid epidemic in the U.S. and what we can do about it next time on Aspen Insight. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.